This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The University of Hawaii takes a bold step requiring students to be vaccinated if they want to attend in-person classes this fall. It hangs on federal regulatory approval of one of three vaccines now offered to adults and teens across the country. Hundreds of campuses across the country have decided to mandate the shots for the fall. We talked to UH President David Lassner this morning to learn more. What we really wanted to do was get it out there that this is going to be a requirement. And we know we have a lot of details to work through, but we didn't want to wait. We have a lot of parents and students who have been asking, mostly positive, that they want to know that we're going to be safe in the fall. And there are some people who are unhappy as well, who we figured we might as well let them know early. As far as the backlash or the support, I mean, are people threatening to pull their kids out of school or what? We've had... There's a range of unhappiness. Some of it is, you know, what you would expect. Some of it is around concern that the vaccines are, quote, experimental. And that's one of the reasons that we try to make it really clear that the requirement will only go into effect once at least one of the vaccines is fully licensed by the FDA, which we expect this summer. So if you just have one of the vaccines approved, then what happens to the other people who got the other vaccines? Yeah, so make no mistake about it. We believe the vaccines are absolutely safe and effective, but we know there are people who are concerned about the emergency use authorization. And for them, we would expect them to only want to get a fully licensed vaccine. So we're very happy with whichever vaccine a student has taken, as long as it's authorized in any way by the U.S. emergency or not, or by the World Health Organization. So if we have international students coming in with a vaccine that's authorized by WHO in their, and is in use in their country, we will honor that as well. Okay, so then the policy you think is broad enough? We believe so. You know, we'll have medical exemptions and religious exemptions. So the only reason not to get vaccinated is if you don't believe in vaccination for these vaccines. But we think, again, by making sure that there's at least one fully licensed vaccine available before the semester starts, we'll be just fine. And as far as the folks that opt out? If they just opt out, we will be happy to have them as online learners. We'll continue to provide student services online. We just think having a safe campus means having a vaccinated campus. And obviously, you know, a lot of this is just in flux. When I went to go look at your list of frequently asked questions, a lot of it was just, you know, we'll check back later. We're going to be evolving because of, you know, whatever the CDC decides or the World Health Organization decides. So it's kind of a moving target. I think, as you know, I'm a kind of an NPR junkie, and I heard the interview yesterday with the head of one of the large teachers unions nationally, and she said it would sure be nice if things didn't change every three minutes, but that's part of leading in this time. We learn more about the disease, we learn more about the vaccinations, and we have to roll with the changes, so we're expecting that. We're really happy. We're in conversation with Dr. Libby Char, who is an MD, our director of health, She's hopeful that with the vaccine requirement in place, we can return to mask-free classrooms without physical distancing for the fall. And that will be really important, returning to high-quality in-person learning and research and everything we do. And the Department of Education has announced its plan for the fall as well. Right. We didn't time it together, but it was a big day for education yesterday, obviously. And you mentioned unions. I understand you still have to, what, Consult and confer, negotiate with the various yeah, unions? Yeah, I'm just going to say we're, <laughs> we will be in formal discussions. The lawyers and labor relations people figure out if it's negotiation or consult and confer, and they've expressed willingness to have those conversations with us. Of the roughly, there's a little over 360 universities around the country that have announced a student vaccination requirements. And less than half of them also have employee requirements. So we'll be in good company, you know, whichever way that goes. If it can't be a requirement, we'll just continue to encourage and educate to try and get as many people vaccinated as possible. We have a fair amount of international students. How does that work with that filter if the students are, let's say, in a country where they don't offer these vaccines? What we would do is if they are unvaccinated completely 
and they arrive here, we'll make sure to try and get them vaccinated their first day back or first day of arrival. Ideally, we'll be able to get them the one shot Johnson & Johnson so that they can be, you know, the term of art is fully vaccinated. And that's typically two weeks after your last dose, whether you're in a one or two dose regimen and get them vaccinated as quickly as possible. If they arrive, you know, the day before classes, we'll have to figure out how to keep them safe and everyone around them safe in that period. And that's part of what we're working through, whether that's going to be regular testing, additional masking requirements. We have quite a few options. We just haven't worked through those details just yet, but we have plenty of time before school starts in uh, August. Do you have like a, a place where people can go, you know, parents and students, if they have questions about this, is there one go-to spot to yeah, kind of COVID-19 sort this out? at hawaii.edu is our email. I have to admit that, you know, we, we called it frequently asked questions. We had to guess what people would ask because we hadn't made the announcement yet, but we wanted to answer as many questions as we could. So as the questions come in, we'll continue to update the FAQs. We foreshadowed this. I publicly said we're looking at this probably a month ago, and we really wanted to work our way through the issues and watch what was going on around the country and in Hawaii. As soon as we announced we were thinking about it, we got a mix of feedback, both how can you be thinking about this, it restricts our liberty kind of notes, or um, it's medical experimentation. But we also got a lot of people saying, hurry up and announce it. Otherwise, I don't want to send my kid to your school. Well, we already require proof of vaccinations for other diseases. That's right. We require a TB test and clearance. We require immunization for measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, varicella. I don't even know what that is. I think that's Um, uh, shingles. We also have additional (laughs) vaccinations for first-year students living on campus. So this is nothing new. It's just one additional vaccine requirement. We know this is not something we did lightly. It's based on guidance from the American College Health Association, which is the professional association for basically campus health centers and doctors. But it's also our own. We have a health and well-being working group since the pandemic hit with leadership from our School of Medicine, nursing, public health, pharmacy, and all of the professional advice is that a vaccination requirement for students is one of the best things we can do to return to high-quality face-to-face teaching, learning, and research. You know, the other thing, though, that I wonder about is just the enforcement. Do we have a system in place that's going to be able to handle this, you know, the checking? Yeah, we'll extend the same system we use for our current vaccination requirements. So students are required to, before they register, they provide proof of it'll be a doctor's note, Or if you take a TB test, you get a little slip of paper, you show it, you scan it and send it in. And we make a notation in your student record that you've been cleared from a health perspective. So that's the same thing we can do. And then we can basically also know which of our courses are online or not. You know, we can make sure that only students with health clearances are taking in-person classes. We've also been using a system, and and we're looking at extending it. We have a daily health check-in that runs on a smartphone or other device. Essentially, every day you self-check, how am I feeling? Do I have a cough? Do I feel weak? You know, the COVID questions that you get asked at the dentist or other places, and you get a green light on your smartphone. So, for example, for access to the Warrior Rec Center, you have to show that you at least did the personal health check. So we may extend that to have vaccination statuses, looking at what that would take. Okay, but we've got the infrastructure in place to be able to check. We believe we have the infrastructure in place to to do this in a couple of different ways. Absolutely. That was UH President David Lassner talking about the decision to mandate COVID-19 vaccines for the fall semester. Both Chaminade University of Honolulu and Hawaii Pacific University told HBR they are highly recommending their students get vaccinated but have not made the shots mandatory. Both of those schools return to in-classroom instruction in the fall.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. It's almost lunchtime, and for today's backyard quiz, we are ordering out from LNL Barbecue, the ionic, uh, iconic plate lunch restaurant franchise started with a single location on Liliha Street in Honolulu. Eddie Flores took over LNL Dairy's retail space in 1976. He kept LNL in the name when he opened up a small walk-up restaurant. By 1999, with 49 locations throughout the islands, Flores decided it was time to try his luck on the continent. He changed the name to LNL Hawaiian Barbecue so that mainland patrons would understand the restaurant's Hawaii ties. After a successful mainland expansion, LNL opened its first location outside of the United States 10 years later. For today's quiz, we want to know where the first international LNL location opened. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. We've been continuing to have conversations about the escalating price tag of our $12 billion rail project. Yesterday, we heard from City Council Member Heidi Suniyoshi about a resolution she introduced calling for pausing the project at Middle Street to re-examine all the options. Today, we hear from Council Member Brandon Elefante. He's the vice chair of the Council's Transportation Committee, who favors completing rail to Ala Moana Shopping Center as planned. For me, I've always been a supporter and champion of the project, so I believe that we need to complete it to our Moana. There might be some delays that are involved. It could be a phase-in approach. I think what's key is city center utility relocation, seeing if we can move the alignment in that corridor and possibly you know, look at um, maybe a delayed implementation as we move the project towards our Moana. I'm just thinking of the properties, you know, that we have condemned, that the city has uh, secured already along that uh, last, you know, four-mile stretch. If we were to stop at middle, you know, what happens there? What happens to the developers who were uh, told that rail was going to go down that route? Yeah, and that's something that the hard board, hard administration would have to, you know, review. I know one area they're looking at is, you know, city center utility relocation and removing those utility lines. They know it's going to be a challenge to get from Middle Street to Alamoana that last several miles. You know, we have transit-oriented development plans that are being under consideration. And I just want to remind folks that with the oriented development or potential for height and density, transit comes first. So like you said, Catherine, that a lot of people in communities from Kalihi going into downtown Chinatown to Ala Moana, um, you know, it was pitched to them and, and part of our plans that rail was going to go, is going to go to Ala Moana. I just wonder, you know, about the communities out there on the west side coming in are they going to want to stop at Middle Street and then get on a bus? Yeah, and that's a good point, you know, because I represent communities in Central, you know, just the neighboring district to the west side. And for a lot of people, they work in Alamoana, they work in the Waikiki area that need to commute there. So it's important that we get to that point B, which would be Alamoana. I think it would be a disservice if we fell short of that. There is talk, too, about what about that leg to the University of Hawaii at Manoa, right? Because uh, that contributes to the traffic. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right, uh, you know, I live in Pro City, so if you, 
you just commute, you know, 10 miles. Sometimes it takes two hours one way, depending on traffic. And when you have UH in session, granted that this year it's because of COVID, you know, things have been online or a hybrid. But when UH is in session during a normal fall or spring academic year, it adds time to traffic because people that are students at UH or work at UH have to get there. So I know there's been talk about future extensions, but for right now, for the minimal operating segment for 20 miles, 21 stations from East Kapolei to Alamoana, you know, we need to get that in order and complete that first before starting to look down the road for future spurs or extensions. And what about the decision that the stadium authority made to shut down Aloha Stadium and rebuild a new facility? You know, that, that's a decision from the state to make that choice. It's going to be interesting to see how, you know, as we improve the facility at UH Manoa and have games now there while the stadium is shut down. I think going forward, the overall goal is that, you know, there's that economic opportunity to improve that stadium district area right where that rail station is for housing for a new type of stadium multi-use purpose sort of concert or functional type of outdoor venue that creates a gathering place for that area any other thoughts just about the calls to put the pause on the project and reassess and and study the different options again and update the numbers well i think it's going to be critical you know in the mayor and the heart Interim Director Kaitina, the board, and key officials, you know, when they do, my understanding, meet with the FPA. Now, the FPA is a partner in all this. I've never been supportive of stopping at Middle Street. I believe that we need to get to Amwana and comply with our full funding grant agreement. It's just going to come down to a matter of how we get there with the financing that's involved. Um, and we're very limited because we only have GET, KAT, the city has floated TECP, tax exempt commercial paper. And look at bonds to pay that off. And then the federal government, the FTA, is withholding uh, a big chunk of cash until we get the city center and city utility relocation contracts in order before proceeding. What are your biggest concerns for rail right now? Well, the biggest concern is making sure that we finish that. There are a lot of challenges ahead. Uh, I've always believed in the project because it's a transformative, it's a game changer. It was, it's been the largest public works project, and it's had some hiccups. It's also had some missteps. Now that we, we know where we are, we have to correct those missteps and move forward and get to that point B and getting to Amwana in terms of the financing, in terms of how we look at even starting and operating. But what I will share is that other major municipalities like San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Boston, or even Japan, have a major multimodal transit system that really helps move people from different parts of their communities to get to places that are very reasonable costs. So that is, in the long term, would be the more economic benefit for future generations. Do you fear that there will be legal action if we don't complete this to Alamoana? There could be a potential for that. You know, I don't know the specifics of that. And then what about the ridership issue? Uh, because I think the bulk of the riders are expected to come, you know, in that last four miles. Yeah, ridership is key. You know, so it's important. You know, I know we've built sort of that first 10 miles to Lowell Stadium and looking at an interim opening. But even getting to the airport and opening up stations as it becomes available, I think it's critical that, you know, we have the key amount of riderships. And here's the thing, for people that want to ride it, it has to be more convenient for them and a better alternative than rather than driving in their vehicle or taking transit or paratransit. It has to be a better viable option that is faster, efficient, and safe. That was Honolulu City Council Member Brandon Elefante, Vice Chair of the Committee on Transportation, Sustainability, and Health. Elefante represents communities in central Oahu as well as portions of Waipahu.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the new museum-wide exhibition Joyful Return on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Join HPR Saturday, May 29th, when slot key guitarist Jeff Peterson returns for a members-only virtual concert. The Grammy and Nahoku Hanohano Award winner will perform songs from his recent release, Mele Nahe Nahe, plus music from his travels. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton Studio in your living room. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. One of Lucible Beats Reality Check today looks at a severe erosion problem on Maui's west coast. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So, yeah, this is a real dilemma, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, it's, it's a growing problem over the years. It's just this triple threat of sea level rise, king tides, uh, and storm surges that is really just eating away at this beach at Kahana Bay on Maui. And so you've got this uh, condominium that's uh, right up there, and, and the, 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 the yard in front uh, by the ocean is just uh, falling away. Right. And so, you know, we have these situations all across Hawaii and, and increasingly so. What's a bit unique here is that this is a really heavily developed area. There are nine condominium towers right on the beach. Uh, and so as the beach has been, you know, eroded and there's been loss of land, uh, you know, it's getting to the point where there's very little between these buildings and the ocean. Uh, and obviously the problem is, is only going to get worse. Right. And the pictures that you have uh, with your story, I mean, you know, it shows, right, the, the seawalls that have been built there and then all the emergency sandbags that are kind of holding uh, the, the property back up. Right. There's actually 12,000 feet of these emergency sandbags, you know, the the um, there was a permit allowed for this as an emergency measure um, in order to buy time to find a more permanent lasting solution uh, in the seawalls as well. And so now a, you know, this group of, of owners from these nine condominium buildings, as well as one uh, private homeowner, they've come up with this plan. And the plan is to basically re-nourish the beach with sand dredged offshore, uh, similar to what we've seen done in places like Waikiki. But they also want to build these uh, rock groin structures in a T-shape, seven of them, about 200, uh, excuse me, 200 feet long and about 215 feet wide uh, in the ocean. And, and what these structures do is they keep that re-nourished sand in place. And, you know, who's picking up the tab for this? You know, it's still unclear. It seems like... Uh, there are some options. It might be a combination of, you know, these condominium owners picking up some of the tab, but also, you know, state money, federal money. It looks like it might be a combination of sources, but there isn't a defined plan for that yet. The estimated price tag is between 26 million and 40 million. So this is a really significant project. And, you know, we've heard uh, folks talk about a managed retreat, you know, pulling uh these developments back from the shore because, you know, of sea level rise. Uh, but, you know, how does that work <laughs> exactly? Yeah, and, and that that is an option, um, but large-scale managed retreat has not yet been done in Hawaii. Um, and, you know, from talking to folks involved with this project, it would be particularly difficult to do a managed retreat with this location just because it is so densely populated right at the shoreline. Um, you know, hypothetically, if you were to bulldoze these buildings, right, well, where are they going to go? Uh, it's not like there's open land uh, just, you know, leeward of this location. So uh, figuring out all the logistics to do that would be so intensive. You'd need political will and, and community buy-in and lots of money. Um, so while that might be a, a, a feasible uh, answer for some other locations, you know, these folks are, are really looking to rebuild this beach. Uh, and the plan proposes to 
basically grow the beach by about 65 feet to what it looked like approximately in 1975. Yeah, you know, looking at some of the comments that the readers uh, you're weighing in on on the uh, solutions, I know some aren't keen on taxpayers, you know, picking up a tab. Yes. You know, I think what's happening with our coastlines, it's it's such a big problem. It's psychologically hard to even um, absorb. And, you know, figuring out the best solution, there's not one, you know, one solution for every shoreline. Um, it's just going to be difficult. Figuring out how to pay for it is going to be difficult. But, you know, we really need to start coming up with some solutions. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Brittany. Take care. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. It was curiosity about her family's immigration story that sent a woman on a journey to determine who she should thank. Jia Lin Yang's research into our country's immigration laws prompted her to write a book entitled One Mighty and Irresistible Tide, The Epic Struggle Over American Immigration, 1924 to 1965. The book just won the Zocalo Book Prize and will be featured later this week in a virtual event. We got a chance to talk with her about the book and in the process learned of a Hawaii connection. It started with just trying to understand why my family was allowed to be here. You know, I, I was very familiar, like a lot of uh, immigrant families, with the story of why we left where we were from. So my family, for many generations, was in Shanghai and China. And after the Civil War there and after the Communist Party took over, many of them fled to Taiwan. And then my parents came to the U.S. for college and graduate school in the 70s. So that was the story that I knew. I not really stopped to think, well, why were we allowed to come here when a lot of people aren't allowed? And I basically kind of stumbled onto this law, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, um, at the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Museum in Austin. And learned about the law and, and just saw a very quick description of it in the museum saying, this is why there's so many Asian Americans in the U.S. And I thought, well, maybe my family's connected to this law. Sure enough, we are. And um, I just started digging to, to try to understand, like, where is this law from? You know, if so many Asian Americans are here now, if so many people are from the Middle East, Africa, outside of Europe, if this law really changed America, what is this law and where did it come from? And it seemed like understanding the history of it and where it came from would become a way to understand sort of how we got to the place we're at right now, demographically, culturally, politically. And how does Hawaii fit into that picture and the rules and the laws of this country that you research? There's a really important figure who's very little known named Takao Ozawa, who in the early 1920s, he's a Japanese immigrant who basically moves to California for school and then eventually settles down in Honolulu and works for a sugar company and has a wife and children. But he's not an American citizen. And so he petitions to become a citizen in a, in the, in a federal courthouse in Honolulu. And essentially his case reaches all the way to the Supreme Court. It's really important because at the time, the U.S. law basically was that if you were to become a citizen, you had to either be basically, quote-unquote, a free white person or the descendant of African slaves from emancipation and the Civil War. But no one else was eligible for citizenship. So Taka Ozawa in Hawaii presents this odd case because he's neither white nor black. He's Japanese. And the Supreme Court doesn't really know what to do with him. And the court basically looks at his case and they say, well... He's obviously not black, and he's not white either, so no, he can't be an American citizen. And when that happens, first of all, it's an important ruling because it establishes that Asian Americans cannot become citizens, something that I think I at least took for granted before, and that took political changes to, to undo. But when that happens in 1922, there's a whole debate around U.S. immigration broadly 
and the Congress writes into the law that anyone who's not eligible to be a citizen cannot immigrate to the U.S., full stop, after the Supreme Court ruling. So without saying it, based on this ruling, it says if you're from Asia and you're an immigrant, you can't, you can't even come, right? You can't naturalize after you're here. And now that we're looking at our immigration laws and all these, we want to add these ethnic quotas, if you can't even naturalize, you shouldn't be here in the first place. And so that law, it basically all but bans all immigration from Asia in 1924. But Takao Ozawa's story, the story of him in Honolulu, the story of this case is really important to understanding that. What's interesting is that the immigration laws are so funny because you know, there's the infamous 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which bans Chinese laborers from coming to the U.S. And at the time, you know, the, the stereotyping around Chinese immigrants were that they were, you know, these quote-unquote kind of low-skilled laborers. They were working on the railroads. They were working in mines. And then, effectively, that essential ban on Asian immigration, not total, there, there were people coming from the Philippines, but essentially blanket ban, goes on through the, the 20s, the 30s. It's only during World War II that the U.S. lifts the ban on Chinese immigrants to just like 100 or so people. It's during the war, and it just seems embarrassing to ban immigration from one of our allies. But it's not until 1965 that really changes. And in 1965, they say, well, we want people with advanced degrees. We want people who have special skills. This is someone like my mother who had an advanced degree in science. That's who we want in the U.S. And suddenly, out of just your selectivity, the country starts admitting all these Asian immigrants who are doctors, engineers, and there's sort of a new stereotype, I'd say, about Asian Americans. But it's very much tied to what people are doing for a living. And the earlier iteration was all about these laborers on the, on the rails, and then later it becomes people with these advanced degrees, and that's who the country really selects for. Um, so to me, that's also a lesson in the government really chooses who's here. It's not just sort of a natural fact that people who are coming from Asia end up with these degrees, end up with these skills. We are actively choosing for them to be that way. What does the current climate, you know, with the hate crimes that we're seeing, how are you looking at that? They tell me that for all of the numbers of Asian Americans in this country now, there are millions of Asian Americans, there are far more in the U.S. than there have ever been in the history of this country, that our arrival is and these sorts of numbers, this level, is relatively recent. Of course, there have been Asian Americans in this country for a very, very long time. There have been generations. But this sort of latest wave of immigrants and their children, all from this you know, 1965 law, so it's a kind of a post-1965 phenomenon, these people, of which my family I would include, you know, our sort of cultural place in America is, is relatively recent and is still being established. And so the story of what it means to be Asian American in this country, I think, is changing. I mean, if you have this many people from all across Asia, right, like well beyond China at this point, that changes race in America. And I think that I think there are a lot of Asian Americans who this last year, these last few years during the Trump era, too, are kind of waking up to what it means to be a political actor in this country, that there isn't really a way to opt out of that. You can't just sort of keep your head down and do the work. There's there is a lot of history attached to being Asian American that you kind of can't ignore. But I think if your family is relatively recent, that's a, that's a history that you might not be familiar with. And so I think learning about these immigration laws, asking questions like, why is my family here? Why are we allowed to be here when others are not allowed to be here? What is the status of our sort of political rights? What does that mean for a moment like this when people are looking for help? They're looking for allies and solidarity. It really gets way beyond, I have my visa and I'm here. It gets to be, what does it mean to be Asian American in this country at this moment? What does that symbolize? What does that mean politically? You know, what is the level of power that this group has? What does it not have? All those questions to me feel very, very new because the post-65 immigration is so recent. And I think these attacks show just how much more thinking through and kind of grappling with the presence of this many Asian Americans the country still has to do. Do you worry about your children's future and whether they'll be targeted? I don't know because I don't even know what the sort of post-pandemic world is like. I think the many of us have been, I've been cooped inside for a while. I haven't really been out. I don't really know what world awaits. I do worry. I mean, I worry about that for sure. I, at the same time, I think that it's also an exciting moment to be Asian American in this country. There's, there's just a lot more art being made, I think, by Asian Americans and people writing about what it's like to be Asian American, writing about the history, writing, writing literature, writing poetry. 
writing essays. I think of Kathy Park Hong's book this year, Minor Feelings. There are a lot of people kind of working out and saying out loud what this identity means. And I think the more of that that's happening, the easier it will be for for younger generations, because there will be a way to talk about it. I think oftentimes when you're an immigrant, you know, not to speak too broadly, I think it's really, it's hard to do that because you really need to, you need to fit in. You need to take care of your family. You need to have a job. You've got to make this whole venture in a new land work. But I think for, for later generations, the children and grandchildren of those immigrants, there's a lot of room to assert that being Asian doesn't mean that you're not American, right? The, the Takao Ozawa story, but because just because he's Asian, he's, he's effectively eliminated from the possibility of being American. And I think because of all these demographic changes, that is just changing. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it will be easy for our children or grandchildren. But I think that there is sort of a critical mass of people talking about this, grappling with it, you know, demanding safety and demanding belonging. And I think that's that's different from how things felt even when I was growing up in this country in the 80s and 90s. And that and despite all the fear and the fear of violence, that that part gives me a lot of hope. I think I grew up so just taking for granted that this was a country of, you know, a nation of immigrants. Right, that very, very powerful phrase, that powerful ideal. And by going through the history, I learned just how much people have to fight for that. It's not a given that the country is just going to take in immigrants. It's not a given that the country is going to take in immigrants from outside Europe. In fact, people had to fight literally 40 years to make that possible. Along the way, they won the right for Asian Americans to become citizens, which again, should not be taken for granted. That was not the law of the land was that if you were Asian, you know, you couldn't become a citizen, so somebody had to fight for that and to change it. Then somebody had to fight to overturn that effective ban on Asian immigration. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in 1965. The country said, we will no longer discriminate based on race and ethnicity for immigration. And so it just, it led, I mean, the, the whole project was about, in a way, learning who I should thank for my family's presence here. It was, it was, it was trying to do history as an act of gratitude, that if, if other people fought for something for your family, it felt like I should know who those people were. I should know their names. I should know their stories. And I should feel connected to them. So I think I came away understanding just how fragile these things are, that having a multiracial country with all these immigrants, like my people like my family, my parents, it's a thing to be, it's a thing to be appreciated because somebody had to fight for it to happen. It not only just as easily might not have happened, if you, if you read my book, it most likely would not have happened. It was really a series of flukes that led us to this point. And so I just, I came away with a great deal of appreciation for the fragility of these rights and the sense too that anything for the future has to be, it has to be made by people. There's no autopilot version of this country. It's a thing that people fight over. And um, especially in a moment like this, people are fighting over whether, whether this country really is going to be a multiracial democracy. And, um, you know, the last thing I'd say too is, you hear about immigration so much in the news, and there's something about seeing how your family fits in that system that gives you a sense of what difference is there really between my family that wanted to get here and somebody else who's trying to get here today. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, it's, it's a couple lines in the law, but we should not assume that just because the law in one year let your family in, that in another year they would have, you know, if you just changed the year of my family, we wouldn't have been allowed here. So just seeing the contingency of it just gave me a deeper appreciation for the power of power of politics. So you're taking part in an upcoming virtual event here. So the question is, does America really want a a nation of immigrants? Uh, What do you think? I think we go back and forth. Yeah. I don't think we, we, we don't always want to want it. And sometimes you're not, we do. It's always in flux. And, you know, it struck me during the Trump years, there was all this anger. It was kind of like, how dare the Trump administration walk away from being a nation of immigrants? That's just what we are. This is this is like a diversion or like mm-hmm. a, you know, this is an abnormality. This is not normal for us to not admit immigrants. And if you just take a very cursory look at the history, that's not true. It's yeah. In fact, the norm is to have very tight restrictions. Yeah. But in the midst of that, I think there's a lot of pride about being a nation of immigrants, too. I think that's very real. Just as much as there's nativism, there's a counterbalance of people who deeply believe in this country as having its sort of greatest version of itself as as having immigrants, right? So the nativist side is that immigrants make the country less American, less true to its nature. And there's an opposite view that that is actually what makes the country what it is, a different kind of nationalism. And I think these two versions are always battling it out together. 
That was Jia Lin Wang, New York Times national editor and author of the new book, One Mighty and Irresistible Tide. She takes part in a Zocalo Public Square event this Thursday. For links, head to our website later today. Anybody else hungry? Well, for today's quiz, we asked where the first international L&L location opened. Since the first L&L drive-in opened its doors in 1976, the iconic plate lunch franchise has had locations in over 18 states and territories and six countries. A musabi from L&L in Tokyo will run you 380 yen, or about $3.50. In 2015, the Jakarta Post announced the first L&L location in Indonesia and recommended its readers try the beef saimin. But the honor of the first international location goes to Otahuhu in Auckland, New Zealand. Hawaiian barbecue came to Otearoa in 2009. Have you been to an L&L abroad? How'd it taste? That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, why don't economists know the best policy for a minimum wage? Well, I think we know a lot, actually. <laughs> um, we don't all agree. Also, the trickiest thing about making economic policy. People are not cogs in machines. They are people. The true story of the minimum wage fight. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Opera Theater's Hot Digital, presenting Hometown to the World, the story of three individuals who find a shared humanity in the wake of trauma and loss. Opens this Friday at hotdigital.vhx.tv. Before days, the missionaries was the main ones for spread the word. What we see now is that the missionaries, they get one powerful effect for strengthening up God's hui, especially with places where get plenty growth, plenty people still coming in inside the truth. Now we need these solid ones for be inside the congregation and for strengthening the field and same time for charge the field and for help the new guys for come solid in the ministry too. That was a Hawaiian pigeon translation of a field missionary video from the Jehovah's Witnesses website. The global religion has translated its materials into over a thousand languages in an effort to reach the world with its message. The pandemic caused the organization to adapt that effort, but with an increase in vaccinations and travel to and from Hawaii on the rise, will they be resuming outreach in the Aloha State and beyond? Well, the conversations Russell Subiano talked to Robert Hendricks, the U.S. spokesman for the Jehovah's Witnesses, to find out. But well, we are carefully looking at the situation in all of the world, but especially from our standpoint, the United States. And we see Hawaii has done an excellent job in containing the virus. We know that your rates are very down. Your vaccine rates are hovering around average, which is good. All of that is going to inform a future decision. But at this point, all of our congregations and all of our public preaching, they've gone to a virtual format and, and other alternative ways to preach the gospel because okay. We still really feel that one life lost as a result of any negligence is one life too many. In this way of adapting to the pandemic and still being able to, to witness, have members seen an increase in the amount of new people they've been able to meet or new people they've been able to bring into the organization? It's been a pretty amazing response to our letter writing campaign and our organized telephone witnessing. When we started this a year ago, clearly it was something that was new for many of us. Though the organization had been training us for this for many years, most of us preferred going from door to door or 
standing in front of our carts and engaging people on the street corners in Waikiki or in Maui. Uh, it was just something that we enjoyed doing that, and we enjoyed meeting people. However, when, when we did lock down and when we suspended all public witnessing across the United States, it was very clear that we had to find another way. And that other way has been very successful. And our meeting attendance has been up. Our special memorial attendance, which is our special day each year, is, is way up. And 240,000 people were baptized as Jehovah's Witnesses in 2020 alone. What do you attribute the increase to? Was the pandemic a time when people were looking for a place to put their faith or questioning their faith or, or looking toward a higher power to help them understand what was going on? I think people are understanding that, that this time is, is very different from anything we've ever experienced. In our lifetimes, it has been very rare, if ever, for us to see an entire world just come to its knees yeah. economically, educationally, financially, uh, in all ways, even religion. And that happened in just a few weeks. And I think that it did shake folks up. I think it did say to them, what is really important to me? Where are my priorities? I mean, we had 150 people a day contacting us just wow. in the United States to get more information. And it really shows us that people are searching for something better, a solution. And they're also searching for community. And Jehovah's Witnesses are a global brotherhood. And so even though we can't meet face-to-face, -face, we have maintained that community in a very special way through personal attention and through virtual meetings and, and making sure that, that everyone is okay and has what they need in order to continue to, to thrive spiritually and to survive physically and economically. Going back to what you said earlier about personal connections, knocking on doors, being the preferred method of interacting with the public and, and witnessing to the public, with the vaccines that have rolled out, what's the church's stance on vaccines? Are they requiring members to get the vaccination, or is it up to the individual? It's a personal decision on whether someone uh, takes a vaccine. There's no doubt that uh, the vaccines have proved very successful in the United States to contain the virus. We're seeing that now. We're happy to see that. We have informed every congregation, all 13,000 congregations in the United States, that the vaccines are available and that it is a personal decision. In fact, we've done that on two occasions. And we want to also make sure that nobody judges each other because they choose not to. Clearly, Bible principles lead us to the conclusion that life is sacred. We consider life sacred. We also love our neighbor, and so uh, those two principles are guiding our decisions, but personal and family decisions will be left to them, and, and there'll be other factors that will guide their decision, and we'll respect the decisions that our congregants make. When the time comes for members to resume traveling and to resume mission work, is there anything, any adaptations or, or innovations that your organization made during the pandemic that you'll carry forward when you resume missions? What we have seen is that we can conduct the, our, our worship and our missions in a very effective way by looking at alternative ways. And I, I think that will never change. I think we're, we're going to be a better organization. We're going to be better equipped to face these challenges in the future. And, and when we come out of this and we do hopefully meet publicly again mm -hmm. and we're able to embrace again, we'll still be embracing those other public, those, those other congregants, uh, uh, the, the medically fragile, the elderly, who perhaps were tied in through a phone line before, but now will be tied in virtually, and, and we'll see their face, and we'll hear their voice, and we've really enjoyed that. We also have enjoyed being able to have a Bible study with somebody virtually at any given time, so if whatever is good for them. We don't have to worry about driving on the road or going out at night. That has been something that, that will stick with us, letter writing, telephone witnessing. So many people aren't home when we knock on the doors. Being able to continue to include these other methods in order to reach people is going to make us more effective in the future. And combined with a personal ministry where we're, we're going door to door, we're seeing faces, but we're combining it with other ways of reaching people and also teaching people, you know, we're going to be more powerful as an organization and, and find more folks who, who really love the message and, and who need it. I think having to navigate this pandemic really has brought up a lot of just a lot of thoughts on faith and and community. Is there anything else you want to share with our listeners about 
how your organization approaches faith and community? I think what, what we have found as Jehovah's Witnesses, that our global brotherhood can thrive with or without a building. Spirituality isn't about a building. It's ironic that the first building that was called a Kingdom Hall in the world was in Hawaii. Uh, and it's, it's our Pensacola congregation, Pensacola Kingdom Hall. And, uh, and, but yet, even though buildings are important, they're places of worship, it doesn't stop us. It's not about a building. It's about our connection to each other, which, which persists and endures in a, in a very profound way. It's about our connection with our Creator. And it's about sharing that spirituality together. And really, that's, that's the point, isn't it? The point isn't you know, can we, how many doors can we knock on. It's really how many hearts can we reach. And we're reaching hearts in a different way. It's very powerful. And as much as we want to get together again, our, our principles have to really transcend our personal preferences. And, and up to now, we have tried to, to really walk the talk, love our neighbor by not going to see them, but finding different ways to reach them and their hearts. And I think that is something that is very profound. When you look at our website, we were uniquely positioned for this pandemic because our website is the most translated website uh, on the globe with 1,031 languages. Our, our local congregations are thriving in, um, in Hawaii Pigeon and also Oelo, Hawaii. Awesome. Uh, and, and, and it's just an amazing thing to see that we can still thrive even in this pandemic. That was U.S. Spokesman for the Jehovah's Witness, Robert Hendricks, speaking with uh, HBR's Russell Subiano. That's it for us now. Tomorrow we hear from a group uh, which has been behind the rail project from the get-go, Move Oahu Ford. We'll be hearing from developer Stanford Carr. We would like to hear from you. What do you think about the latest problems with rail? Do we build it to Ala Moana at all costs? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hoypublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. And I almost forgot, we do have a winner for the Backyard Quiz, uh, Nakula Nanda from Maui. You got it right. Your tote bag will be on its way. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.